how many of you ever played Ring Around the Rosie? Hands up. And I tell you, really, that's all? You never played it? You didn't, well, you raise your hand on my wife. I thought, my wife, I, we got to get down to business here. If she never played it. I'll tell you, this is game is probably as popular as the World Series these days. That's a, it's a game that kids grow up playing. It's kind of a bizarre game. You know, you think about it. What is going on here? What's the history? And one of the things I found out is there are people that are experts um, in children's nursery rhymes. And they actually do research on it. And they try. I don't know who pays them or what, but they go, this is what they do. And they go back and they found out that that was started in 1846. And people say, well, maybe it was part, you know, it has links to the bubonic plague or the, you know, the black plague, but that was too many years before. So we really don't know what the cause was. But what we do know is that it, it really, in a way, it paints a picture of life. You, you think about it. In many ways, it's like we ho- we're holding hands and we're running around in circles. My dog does that. She, she chases after her tail, right? Good thing we don't have tails because that's what we'd be spending most of our time doing. We don't even know why we do it. You know, life is almost meaningless. We just hold hands and we just go round in circles, round in circles, round in circles. Doesn't it feel that way sometimes? You just kind of follow the person in front of you. Just keep going, one foot in front of the other. And then somebody trips and falls and we put them in the middle and we highlight them and we say, well, this person has problems and so forth. And then we go back and we run around and run around. Then what finally happens? How's it end? We all what? We all fall down. That's kind of a picture of life. We run around in circles, somebody messes up, we deal with it, then we run around in circles again, then we all fall down. Life's over. And it seems kind of futile. In fact, I think I might have used this illustration before, and it reminded me where I did is when we did our series on Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a lot like Romans, because it, it paints a pretty dismal picture at the beginning, doesn't it? It says, life is like chasing after the wind. It's hopeless. The good thing about Romans is Romans gives us hope. And as we're in this book, we've been studying the gospel truth from Romans. And it starts off really well. At the very beginning, it gives us hope. And in chapter 1, it says, there is hope. God takes his righteousness and he makes you right so you can live with him forever in heaven. And what do you have to do to gain that? Nothing. It's just by faith. He says, you receive it by faith. That's good news. But we have been on a series that we're going to conclude today called The Problem. And the problem is with all this good news, so we don't have to be chasing after our tails. All this good news, so we don't have to be running around in circles in a meaningless way. We still run around in circles in a meaningless way. Most people, in fact, the vast majority of people who have ever lived in history have essentially rejected the gospel truth. And they don't live for it. And, and they do different things. You know, we looked at some people, the immoral person says, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to get in my way. Not going to work. The moral person says, well, I may not be perfect, but surely I'm good enough. Not good enough. Not next to God's perfection. And then you have the, the person who's the religious person, right? The religious person we talked about last week, I've been baptized. I've taken the Lord's Supper. Certainly I've got to get in. But he says, No. None of those things are good enough. None of us are good enough by ourselves to get in. And and so that's the problem that we have. And today we're going to talk about kind of everybody that's left over. You know, everybody else, you say, well, I'm not that bad, really. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not a perfect person, but man, I'm not a drug addict. 
you know. And everybody picks out things. You know, I never, I never got in trouble for this. I never even got in trouble in school. You know, not good enough. And it keeps coming back to that. So he's going to round it off today, and we're going to look at this. Next week, we're going to take a little break, and we're going to look at uh, uh, Matthew. If you want to read ahead, I encourage you to read the last three, chapter, last three verses of um, chapter 6, and then we're going to go through chapter 7 of uh, Matthew. So read chapter 7 of Matthew. This week, we're going to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Let me read it to you. Begin chapter, uh, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their, in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No one is good enough for God. No one. We start off when we look at the beginning here, verses 9 through 18. The problem is, is that all are under sin. He begins and he says, what then? In other words, let's talk about what happened last week. He talked about the religious person. Remember last week, he didn't talk about all religions, but he used the Jewish people as an example because he himself was Jewish. And most of the people he's writing to in Rome, in this first church in Rome, come from Jewish heritage. So he says, you know, look at us Jewish people. We're God's favorite people. But when it comes down to it, we're no different than the Greeks or the non-Jews. We have nothing over them. We're all the same. We all have a problem that we're all under sin. In other words, we're all captured by sin. Now, when I go to somebody these days and I say, are you a sinner? And they'll say, I'm not a sinner. You know, I don't, I'm not a bad person. What do you mean? Right? I don't say things. I don't swear. Not very often. Not from my mom. You know, I mean, I, I, I can watch it. I, you know, I don't, I don't drink too much. You know, those kinds of things. But that's not what sin means. The word for sin is a Greek word. It's called harmatia. And harmartia means to miss the mark. It was, a, it was a term used in archery. We may have talked about this before. So the archer shoots and he misses the mark. No matter how hard you try, there may be times you get close to the mark, but I don't know that you ever hit the bullseye because you can't. You're imperfect. So you keep trying, but you keep missing. Now, here's the other thing is sometimes you intentionally miss the mark, right? If we're honest, you say, doggone it. I'm tired of shooting, and you just let it go. And some bird gets hit or something by accident. You know, you just let it go, right? And we do that a lot. That's called volitional sin or intentional sin. I get mad. I know I shouldn't yell at my wife, but I do. I know I shouldn't drink another drink at this party, but I do. And I did it on purpose. It wasn't an accident, right? 
So either way, you can fall off the horse either way. It's either intentional or accidental, but guess what? You're never, ever, ever going to measure up. The great theologian Charles Hodge said this. He said, God, listen to this. It's, it's, it's heavy kind of, but it's, it, it's actually very practical. God can never acknowledge or declare that just which is not so in itself. He cannot pronounce a sinner just unless he is inherently righteous. Do you understand what he's saying here? He, he's saying God can't, it's not, God, it's not capable. If God is God and if he's perfect, he can't say that you are not a sinner. Because if he did that, he'd be a liar and then he would no longer be perfect. You get it? So God can't say, come on in, I am perfect and holy and everything about me is holy and I will pretend that you are too. Because then God wouldn't be holy. And so we've got ourselves a predicament. And that's the picture that he's painting here at the very beginning. Um, and he says, man, we've, we've got a difficult situation here. And he goes on and he explains it in a kind of a unique way. What he does is he takes all these verses from the Old Testament and he strings them together. And that wasn't uncommon, but it's just he does it in a long fashion. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on what they all are, but I, I will mention some of them as we go along. I think this, this first one, verses 11 through 12, he references um, Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. For those of you who like to look at this, Psalm 14, 1 through 3, which is very similar to Psalm 53, 1 through 3. So he mentions those first. Now, he gets into this and he says, none is righteous, no, not one. This is the one thing he changes. It actually reads, in the Psalm 14, it reads, uh, no one is good, no, not one. But, Saul, but he changes it. Now, he, he doesn't change what the meaning of it. The meaning of it is, is nobody's good enough to get to heaven. But remember, he's writing about this forensic term, this courtroom term. No one's righteous. No one has been pardoned before God. No one is good enough to get in. And so he ties it together and he says, this is what I'm talking about. See, he said the same thing. No one's good enough, therefore no one's righteous. This all ties into what I'm saying. Do you guys get it? Yeah. One person got to hear. And in those days, hopefully they had somebody like that saying, yeah, I get, I get it. Because he's reading this out loud, probably the person who's reading it. So he says that and then he says, uh, no one does it. No one understands. We can say, okay, I, don't, I, I guess I don't understand. But here's the one that gets us. No one seeks for God. What do you mean? I seek for God. Another theologian, Thomas Schreiner, says it this way, no human being on his own seeks for God or does any good that merits salvation. On our own, we don't. Do you know God is the one who tugs on your heart? God is the one who makes himself known to you and you respond to him. It's not that you, you find him. In fact, that's how other religions are. Religion is man finding God, but it, with Christianity, God comes to man. He's the one who initiates. You're the one who responds. Amen. And that's what he's saying here. He says, if you try to do things on your own, as Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, all our righteous acts are as filthy rags. Boy, that doesn't go well. Imagine them teaching that in elementary school today. I mean, everybody gets a trophy, right? I went to a, a football game yesterday and I saw trophies. I think everybody got a trophy. I mean, that's what they do. We live in this self-love, self-esteem culture. and This doesn't fly well. But what it's telling us is that God is God and we are not. And, and we need to keep him on the throne. Um, but here's the good news that it comes along. I, I can't help but mention the good news here is that 
there is an archer who hits the bullseye every time. And it's Jesus, or it's God, God of the universe. And I'll tell you what, when he gets behind you, and he's holding your arms, and he's your father, and he shoots through you, you hit the bullseye. But you've got to be in relationship with him. You've got to have your daddy with his arms around you helping you. And that's, he says, normally, if we try on our own, we're not going to do it. In fact, if we try on our own, it's a holistic failure. Holistic in the sense that it affects our whole body. And he goes on to give illustrations that relate to the hands, the feet, the eyes, the mouth. And he just, basically, it's a, it's a creative way of saying, you're just all messed up. It's what we call moral depravity. There's nothing good enough in us to earn our way into heaven. And we're under sin. And he begins giving these examples. Um, and the first one, he, he quotes from um, verses 5, it's Psalm, Psalm 5, verse 9, and Psalm 10, verse 7. Uh, and, he, and he looks at these first few ones, these first verses 13 through 14, and he talks about the mouth. I was just talking about somebody earlier about how painful the mouth can be. Uh, the things that we say with our tongues. The venom of asp, that means the poison of, of snakes. Anybody ever sting you with the word that they said in your life? Anybody ever hurt you? Said something you didn't like? I asked you to bring me a Phillips screwdriver. You brought me a flathead. What a dummy. Haven't I told you before? You should know by now. I think the reason you're not doing well in school is because you don't try hard enough. You're going to be a loser. In fact, I think you already are. I thought I loved you, but now there's somebody else, and I realize you're just not for me. You're not good enough for me. Anybody ever say anything like that in your life? Maybe you've said it. The tongue can be so dangerous. James writes about it the most in James chapter 3, verses 1 through, 9, 1 through 12. He agrees with Paul. They just go hand in hand in this. And James says, watch out for the tongue. He says, it's such a small thing, but it can spark up and set a forest on fire. He says this in James chapter uh, 3, verse 9. He says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. It's incredible. It's something that's created for us so much good can cause so much trouble. One of the striking things about the tongue is that people can say things like, well, I don't do this wrong, I don't do that wrong. We can go through the list and say, I'm basically a good person, but I'll tell you what, nobody can triumph the tongue. The tongue takes us all down. Even if you were good and everything else, you're going to say something that takes you down. This is particularly um, frightening for me because I'm a very verbal person. If you talk a lot, you've got to be really careful. So... Watch your tongue. And then he says, you know, the tongue basically goes on to affect all of society. Everett Harrison, uh, another guy I was reading, said this. He says, society can be no better than those who constitute it. Think about that. The society you live in is not going to be any better than the people who live in it. So if you have people that are living in it that are sinful, you're going to have a sinful society. And that's what happens. That's what he goes on to explain. And he talks about that in verses 15 through 18, and here he quotes from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 7 through 8. And he, and he basically says that, I mean, the basic idea is, I insult you, you insult me. I push you, you push me. I hit you, you hit me. I shoot you, you shoot me. My family gets revenge, your family gets revenge. My country gets revenge, 
You, you see where this goes? That's life. Uh, to this day, there, there are conflicts going on. Uh, uh, it's like it's not getting better. It's hard to believe. And in fact, I don't believe until Jesus comes again will we ever have world peace. There's always a conflict going on. And it's because of what he just described, because we're under sin, that these events take place. So they can, they can be, um, you know, really disturbing. Now, having said that, I want to ask you this question. Did you know that the Bible is opposed to positive thinking and self-esteem? If that's true, it's going to put some televangelists out of business. But, but, but it is. The Bible doesn't teach that. The concept that that has, listen, listen closely, the concept is that humankind, human beings, are inherently good. And they should be able to do whatever they feel like doing. And if they're just positive, everything's going to work out for them. Do you know what that belongs to? It doesn't belong to Christianity. You know what that belongs to? That belongs to secular humanism. It's the polar opposite of Christianity. And it is the prevailing philosophy that drives our society. And many, if not most Christians, to some degree have bought into it. Just because they watch it on television, they see it all the time. It's all about how good you can take care of yourself. You're the best. We're the best. But it's really not what the Bible teaches. And it's kind of stunning for us. But, but when you think about it, it really doesn't work. If everybody thinks they're the best, how do we ever get together and work anything out? Right? How do you ever get together and work everything out if your way is right? If you're the best? And everybody's supposed to follow you, but they, every, the other person thinks everybody's supposed to follow them. It's striking to me that we've probably never lived in a more narcissistic and selfish um, society than we have now in our country. And yet, I think that worldwide, we've never had more of a desire for world peace. And it's sort of ironic, because everybody's sincerely trying to, to make things work out, but nobody's willing to recognize that they could be the problem that we have. And so everybody's insisting on their rights and just making it worse. Is that crazy? There's two things. Two things I think that this passage will argue that would bring us together. The first thing is that we start by recognizing that we're all sinners. And nobody's better than the other person. We're all on a level playing ground. My job is to try to work with you, not to try to dominate you. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. We're all messed up. Let's start there. Now we can discuss it. Now we don't have to fight anymore. That's where we start. The other thing you need is some sort of abs moral absolute. If you just say anything goes, you're going all over the place. But God, I, I think God shows us that even in our hearts, right? Even in our hearts, we know what's right and wrong. We know from the beginning, from the time we're born, that we shouldn't lie, cheat, and steal. It's just sort of in our conscience. You take something like the Ten Commandments. I mean, I know there are things about the Lord in there that an unbeliever may not understand, but you can take some of those basic things that the Bible gives us, and it, it just lays it out. We, we need to have that. Especially as Christians, the ideal framework is basically following what God says we should do. That's where we get our moral absolutes. But if people could come together on, on you know, and say, these are, and, and we have in our country, well, one of the beautiful things about America is we have a Judeo-Christian heritage where we did that. And our Constitution was based largely on the Bible. Not entirely, but at least we had some absolutes. But now we're straying away from those absolutes. So we need to have people understand that they're all sinners, and then we have to have some place where we have some moral absolutes. 
We need, to have a, we need to recognize that there's a supreme being. That he is the God of the universe. He is Yahweh that we just sang about. And that's, that's the perfect place for us to be, especially when we're in a church. That's what we do. We practice that. And we, we recognize that he's the leader. Now, he goes on, Paul goes on, and he talks about all are under the law. And it's like, well, I think you made your point, Paul. You got us all depressed and told us how messed up we are. So why do we need to talk about the law? Well, the law measures it for us. In other words, you say, well, how do I know I'm so bad? Okay, well, here's a law. This is how you should live. And let's see if you live up to it. And you can see specifically that you can't. And so Paul goes into that next, and he picks it up in uh, the last part, in the last couple of verses, verses 19 through 20. And he says, you know, we know that whatever law, if you're under a law, you have to fulfill the law. And if you don't fulfill the law, you don't have to do everything the law says, and you have failed in the law. The example he seems to be giving in the context is of the Jewish people. What he's basically saying is the Jewish people had a law given to them. They were God's favored people. Did they fulfill the law? Didn't do it. So if they didn't do it, what chance would the rest of us have? That law can never be fulfilled. Furthermore, if we go back to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 uh, through 32... Paul says that we have the law of our conscience, which we referenced just a little bit ago. Really, in our hearts, we know what's right and wrong about most things, and we can't live up to that. We can't even live up to our own personal ethical code. And so Paul says, you know, let's just get honest here. We can't live up to, even when we try to put in a law to try to control ourselves, say, okay, I know I'm a sinner, so now I'm going to construct a law to make sure that I live within this law so I don't sin anymore. We still don't do it. So, he goes on to say this. He says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. There is nothing you can do, no effort you can make that will get you into heaven. And the only hope he gives, really, in this particular passage is these last eight words. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And you go, well, what's so exciting about that? What's exciting about it is, is the measurement that comes place. Let, let, me, let me back up and explain this one. I was a little boy. We did something really exciting in our home. In our kitchen, we had a door, and that door led to the garage. And we took a measuring tape, and we would put it up against that, and we would stand up against there tall as I could, and dad would, or mom would take the pen, pencil and they'd mark it and they'd just put how tall I was. And they'd do it for my sisters too. And periodically we'd go to that door and we'd stand up and they'd measure. It was so much fun. Because you know why? Every time I grew, miraculously, I was growing. There was something magical about that measuring tape. That was what did it. You think so? Was it the measuring tape that made me grow? Or did the measuring tape merely measure my growth to show that I was growing? You know, when you're with a kid all the time, you don't always know. You know, like people go up and say, man, you've grown a lot. And I thought, oh, I guess he has, or I guess she has. But when you measure it, you know how tall they are, and you know that they're growing. There's a measuring tape or yardstick, whatever you want to call it, for ethical conduct in life, and it's called the law. And the law measures you. The law does not make you sin, but the law measures your sin to show you how far short you fall from it. It is good because 
it doesn't, the law doesn't save you. The law shows you that you need to be saved. The law causes you to turn to the Savior of the universe so that you can know him and grow in a relationship with him. And that's the beauty of the law is when it directs a person to Christ where they can find peace and not feel like they have to do all these things anymore to be loved by God. So there's a couple applications I want to make. And one is that all of us fall down. You know, we're all going to die someday. We're all going to fall down at God's feet. And, and one of the things I think that people have the most trouble with in our society is understanding that we're sinners. You know, just admitting it, right? Because we get all this self-esteem stuff, and everything's about, you know, I've got to love myself. I'm wonderful. So when it comes to sin, we have a lot of trouble with that. It's like, man... I just, I really have trouble believing that I'm a sinner. When, when we say, but Jesus loves you. Oh, no problem. Well, why wouldn't he? <laughs> Jesus died on the cross for you. Well, of course. Of course. But that's because you're a sinner. No way. Me? You know, that, that is the problem that we have. And it holds us back. It's the thing that keeps people from coming into relationship with Jesus. And even after people come into relationship with Jesus, sometimes they fall back in their old ways and they, they, they aren't dealing with these sins. And one of the really important things to do, I think, is to just go back and, and, and examine some of this, this, you know, this week. Just spend some time reading through this again. These, these verses uh, 11 through 18 or 10 through 18 are, are disturbing, but uh, they help us realize that we don't understand. I don't get it, and I can't ever fully get it. Um, I say things I shouldn't say. I do things I shouldn't do. Just acknowledge the fact that you're a sinner. And acknowledge that to God first. And James goes on, uh, a couple connections with James in this passage, but James goes on in James chapter 5, verse 16, he calls us to confess our sins to one another. It doesn't mean that you say everything, but if you're having problems, you know, could you pray for me? I'm having a difficult time. Our marriage is struggling. I'm getting in trouble with the kids. I'm having troubles in my classes. I'm, I'm not paying attention. I, I, I need somebody to pray for me. That's why we have small groups. That's why people get together. Um, these are priorities. They should be priorities in our life. They're far more important than pretty much anything else you would do other than, you know, basically, you know, caring for your family and you have to go to work and stuff. But, but man, this should be right way at the top is getting together with people, praying for each other, you know, having maybe a small group of people that you can share your, your soul with and who can pray for you and, and can keep you on target and keep you going in the right direction. So that's a good thing to do. We accept it as our human condition. We're not defensive about our sins, but we own them. Um, we don't spend our life... By the way, one of the things that made me think about this is too often... Too often I find that we, even as Christians, we, we spend our lives talking about everybody else and all their sins. You ever see that? You know, we talk about whether it be, sometimes we, we clothe it in sports, or sometimes, a lot of times, it's politics, or whatever else. We, we spend most of our time thinking about what other people are doing wrong. You know, how we can expose them. And we need to own it that we're, we're just as bad. We're all messed up. And confess those sins when they happen to God and know that God already forgives us. Get it off your chest. He loves you. He's forgiven you. And move on. And move on. No human effort can save us. This is the last thing I want to talk about today. 
Nothing we can do to save ourselves. It's been popular in the last generation to talk about praying a prayer. The, the way that we express ourselves to God, if, God, if Jesus is here right now and he said, will you follow me? We might say, yes, I, I would like to follow you. In fact, I'll give my life to you. And, and, and we communicate with him, right, and back and forth. Well, Jesus is here spiritually, so we can talk to him, and that's what prayer is. But there's no formulaic prayer. There's no, like, there's no like you can't get your way. If I pray a particular prayer that has been written out in a book, then I know I'm going to heaven. It doesn't work that way. I get baptized. doesn't work that way. I do the Lord's Supper. We'll take the Lord's Supper today, but that's because we've given our lives to Christ. We're looking back and saying, I've given my life to Christ, and now I'll take the Lord's Supper in memory of that. Remembering that. See? That's not what wins our salvation. Being a moral person, impossible. The only thing that gives our, gets us into a relationship with God is when we surrender our lives to him. Give up on all of our self-efforts, fall down before him and say, take me, I'm yours. If you've never done that, if you've never recognized that you're a sinner and in need of a savior, if you've ever recognized that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave from you, if you've never surrendered your life to him, then please come and talk to us today. I was talking to a lady today who we were just talking about uh, she wanted to be baptized, and, um, and she was telling me about how she gave her life to Christ, just coming to church here. You know, she solidified her life to Christ. And there's some of you that, that if you are at that point where you want, you want to make that next step, you have more questions, come and talk to us. That's exciting. That's the most exciting thing we can do. If you've given your life to Christ, the Proverbs say, don't be like a dog that returns to its vomit. Don't go back. You know, and when you do, don't worry about it. I mean, embrace, embrace failure because you can't lose now with Jesus. You, you can relax. It's not about impressing everybody. Just do the best you can and let the chips fall where they may. And know that God loves you. And if you do something wrong, you can confess it and tell him, I'm sorry, I know you've forgiven me. Let me get this off my chest. And then you grab his hand and move on. I like the way the modern hymn ends, uh, In Christ Alone. I want to read this to you today. I think it's pretty powerful. He says, Since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. I love this part. No guilt in life. Do you catch that? No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Really says it all. By the way, getting back to that game, ring around the rosy, everybody falls down. But what happens after they fall down? They get back up again. And for those of us that are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, and if God is our Father, we'll get up again. When this life ends, we'll get up again. And we'll run into his palace for refreshments at the table of the king. I can't wait for that day. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you so much for your word. It's hard. It's been hard. This series on the problem has been hard, not um, as uplifting as some other things, and yet in a way it is uplifting because it, it takes so much pressure off of us, Lord, and it helps us to relax and depend on you. 
and recognize that it's not about us, it's about you. So help us each to grow in our dependence on you today as a result of this. Dependence that may even lead uh, someone here into a relationship with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.